And there were four, five hundred English people, all in Adidas, Nike, Puma gear, all talking football. And in walks Mr. Singh with my turban on. There are more Asians involved in football than you would expect. There are nowhere near as many Asians involved in football as there should be. Join us on the Our Game 2 podcast as we celebrate the ones that are and discuss the ones that aren't. So I'm now joined by Chaz Carer of the FA. He's actually a Saint, a coach at St. George's Park. Um, and he's had a UEFA A licence since the year 2000. So, Chaz, welcome to the show. Yes, thank you very much, of course. Thank you for having me. So, like I said, you met, you got the A licence in 2000, which means regardless of anything you've done before, you've been involved in football for quite a long time. So, if we just start off with, I mean, what is your journey into football? How did you get to the, that point, the A licence? What do you do before that? Yeah, so just... If I take it right back, I mean, started off at grassroots football at Leamington Spa. Um, there was a couple of guys who wanted to form an Asian team uh, called Kausa Juniors, and they sort of uh, thought, well, why don't we invite Chas to coach? So they invited me, uh, and uh, I went down. They said, would you like to coach, Chas? I said, no, I want to go on my coaching badge first. So back in 1995, I started coaching some Asian kids, South Asian kids in, in Leamington Spa, and we formed something called Kausa Juniors Football Club. Uh, from, then, from then on, Kausa Juniors Football Club was, was the people who funded me all the way through my badges, from getting my level one, level two, UEFA B, to UEFA A, um, and back in 2000, the year 2000. Um, so I carried on with Kausa Football Club for many, many years, and then I went into Coventry City Football Club. So I joined their academy uh, and I coached in their youth academy for 13 years. Um, from there on, I thought, right, OK, I've had enough of carrying a sack of balls every week, four or five times. Well, so I went into the FA and joined the FA to become a coach educator for the last 11 years. What does a coach educator mean? So a coach educator is, is a tutor. So if you want to go and do your level one, I will be one of your tutors. Um, so I started off with the level one tutor and then I became a level two tutor. Um, and then for the last two years, I've been working on the UEFA B project and I've been delivering the UEFA B license to the Chinese people. Uh, we've had some Chinese cohort coming over to this country. Um, but more recently, my involvement with the FA is around BAME, B-A-M-E, um, whereby we're doing a project whereby we're getting a lot of BAME coaches becoming UEFA B coaches, but who are aspiring to become UEFA A licensed coaches. But for some one reason or another, where they're not getting onto the A license, which is invitation only. So therefore, um, I've been involved in supporting them on how to become A-licensed coaches for the last two years. Uh, my role at St. George's Park is 
as a coach, not specifically to any one team, but to any team that comes to St. George's Park. For example, it might be a school team. It might be a Sunday league team. It's been adult teams. It's been semi-pro teams. It's been international football federations. And they come and they have a session with an FA coach like myself uh, for an hour and a half. So I deliver them sessions, which are very, very rewarding because one day you could be coaching under sixes. The next day you could be coaching adults. So you have to have a a big variety in your toolbox and the necessary skills. So that's what currently I am doing. Um, And that's taken me since 1995 to the year 2021. Okay, so going back to the A licence, so you said it's invitation only. Was that the case in back in 2000 as well? Um, no, but the interesting part about that was um, it was a very, very challenging time, of boy, I must admit, um, when we look at, look at the way the lack of Asians have been involved in football in this country, be it a coach, be it a mentor, be it a player, be it an official. So I always remember going to one of the FA seminars, and when I got in there, there's Chaz with my turban on, uh, and I walked in, and there were four or 500 English people, all in Adidas, Nike, Puma gear, all talking football. And in walks Mr. Singh. So now either you walk out <coughs> or you, uh, you, know, you open your chest and you say, here I am, I'm here. And that is exactly what I had to do because um, I was always the minority. I was only the, the, the few. And therefore, you rose to the challenge. Even though the A licence wasn't invitation only, it was still a very, very hard course to get onto uh, because prior to that, there was the UEFA B licence. Now, if you want to get your B licence, and I remember out of 32 candidates, only four of us passed. Um, And therefore, to get on the A licence and to pass the A licence, being one of the minorities as well, was a great, great achievement. And when people talk to me about what was your most incredible achievement in your life I always remember that achievement um, because where did I achieve that I actually achieved that Country City Football Club coaching the under 18s having Gordon Strachan watching me Richard Money the Academy director the two FA uh, tutors and I was doing the under 18s and you can see the level of pressure and uh, when the coach educator at the end says, after going through his report with me, and says, you have passed, well, I jumped in the air. <laughs> and, and I done a typical Punjabi. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's about it for the moment. Uh, um, the A license is not a very easy um, um, license to achieve. Um, but we, even in those days, there was only one or two have passed it. Even now, if you look at how many South Asians have passed the A license in in England, I would still say it's only a handful. And we're talking 20-odd years later, if not longer. So at the time, uh, so going back to the late 90s and early 2000s and stuff, how much, how conscious were you 
I'm going to ask you, I guess, a question in two parts. How, well, so how conscious were you there was a lack of Asians generally in football? And how much of that at the time did you think was to do with kind of obstacles and barriers? Or did you just think, because I guess Asians in large numbers in this country, in the grand scheme of things, is relatively new. So perhaps were you thinking we just hadn't got there yet with football or did you think there were issues and barriers at the time? Um, I'm certainly not the one to jump on the bandwagon of racism. Um, I'm not saying that there wasn't racism around and there isn't racism still. Of course there is. But trying to prove racism is very, very hard. Now, the way I tackled that with my many years at Coventry City and within the FA was to try to do things better than the so-called, my English uh, um, colleagues. And so I always remember, even at Coventry City, my coaching plan sessions, I would even measure the square I was going to put these players into. I would measure two centimetres by two centimetres and I made sure it was very, very neat. So I was conscious that I had to prove myself um, because of, would you say, colour? Would you say that it was not enough of the people who I thought of my colour? Uh, so it's very, very difficult. But um, have I ever seen racism? Might be the next question was, no, I, I've ne- nobody's ever, ever pointed to me in a race, racial way within the FA or at Coventry City. But certainly playing on the football field on a Sunday, yes, we've received racial remarks. Um, so ra- the racial element was, I felt, there, um, not because of uh, the, the minority, really. It's just that we're trying to change a culture within this country, which has been set in its ways for many, many years. Um, so I, I had to overcome that by just doing things a lot better. Okay. Yeah, no, I, I get that. And to be honest, I'm not, I wasn't suggesting there was racism and stuff. When I meet, talk about obstacles and barriers, it might just be to do with the fact that quite often in certain Asian areas and stuff, scouts and coaches don't, or historically haven't tended to go there. So it's more of a, a structural and a system issue rather than people actually being being racist um how so when people turn up actually no let's let's take it back a little bit um talk about coventry and the academy how did you get onto that did you think it was was it especially an special challenge to get into the academy um I was, I was actually at the forefront of when the academies first actually opened up. Um, what we're trying to achieve in an academy is to provide talented youngsters with quality coaching, quality matches to play against the top players in their age group across the country week and week out, you know, top quality competition. So you have to up your level. You have to have certain thing about yourself, certain caliber about yourself to be in an academy. So if you want to be in an academy as a coach now, you have to be a UEFA B license minimum. Um, So, yes, you have to be a certain caliber for me, definitely. 
Okay. And so uh, tell us about your time with the Coventry Academy. What was what was the highlights other than obviously getting the UEFA A licence? I mean, you mentioned Gordon Strachan, so you must have worked with some some pretty big yeah. footballers as well. And it was, it was good time. When did City, when did they win the FA Cup? That was... No, that 1987. Was that was 87, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, so I suppose some of the players that I've been involved with throughout their throughout their years and then, then becoming professional players would be that people like Daniel Sturridge, uh, currently James uh, James Madison at, uh, at Leicester, Shay Adams at uh, Southampton, Callum Wilson at Newcastle. Uh, these players were in the academy at my time, uh, and I spent sort of two to three years with each one. As we, we used to always used to go up a group, two groups every year with each stay with each group. Um, some of the highlights would be to see some of these players who are now in the professional game. Highlight for me, as I've mentioned before, was to try and get it. Get, got my A license at Coventry City. Um, saw a few professional uh, managers. Gordon Strachan came through. Richard Money was our academy director. Uh, Steve Grizovich, our superhero at Coventry City, the goalkeeper. Um, so we saw many people come through the change. But the most influential sort of person for me was Richard Money. He was a, a, a quality coach, not just a quality coach, but also a very good academy director who knew how to get the best out of his subordinates. Um, so he was very influential on, on, on my, my thing. But my, I suppose overall my role model would be my father, I would say. Um, now, why would that be? That would be because some of the morals and principles that I took from growing up from my father, I took into my coaching world and applied those principles into making these players, not just players, but also also good citizens of society. Because nobody knows that they're going to become professional players. I never knew Daniel Sturridge was going to be a professional player at 12 when I used to coach him. And James, James Madison... No way. So you still try to make them good citizens of society. And I would think that's one of the, the key things that we need to remember is that only 0.0017% make it at the other end. Yeah. On that, speaking of your father, etc. So a couple of questions. First of all, how long have you been doing football full time? And when you made that transition into earning your living full-time through football. What was what was your family's reaction to that? Uh, it, it, was, it was actually very interesting because I start, I diversified into football at the age, full-time football at the age of 41. Totally giving it my all. And that's quite late, to be honest, because I never started actually coaching and getting my badges until 28, 29, I was around there. But nowadays you're seeing 16-year-old kids coming onto your level one, level twos. Um, yeah, it was interesting because um, initially I was an engineer. I was, I was an apprentice and an engineer at uh, Jaguar Land Rover. And, and to totally diversify from there, 
at the age of 37, 38, go into this world, you know, your, your, your family looks at you think, well, okay, uh, you sure? <laughs> uh, but they've, uh, that's one thing I've always done is uh, whatever I want to do in my life, I, I, I try to go for it. Um, and I've not looked back. Um, still remembering my roots at Kelsa Football Club. Uh, I still go down there, still mentor some of the coaches down there. And I've still delivered, I've delivered level ones to them as well. Um, but uh, no, I've not looked back. And my family supported me, I would say. Cool. One last thing before we move on from Coventry. When did you join Coventry? Well, uh, 1995, I would say 98. Okay, so I'm sorry to ask you this question, but as a West Ham fan, I kind of have to. The 1990 Youth FA Cup final, which Coventry lost by quite a large score to West Ham, did, were you there and did you realise at the time that some of those players would go on to be as special as they were? Yes. So, Joe Cole. He played it. I think, was it Joe yeah. Cole? Joe Cole was yeah. in that, yeah. He played in that match when I saw it at Highfield Road as well. Uh, he played in that match. And um, the, some of the skills he'd done in that match, you could say this lad had a lot of it's got a lot of potential a lot a lot of potential I don't think he achieved what we thought he was going to be the greatest player that we've ever seen for a while I don't think he achieved those heights but uh, you can tell he was Chelsea that was a wrong move for him yeah yeah there you are you never know what's around the corner you think the grass is greener Uh, but yes I know you give us a good thrashing that day Um, that game also, the captain of the West Ham team was Anwar Rudin. So do, do you remember having any particular thoughts about seeing an Asian on the pitch and captaining another team? Uh, to be honest, I, I did, don't recall him being on the pitch. Um, so I, I really wouldn't know that we had an Asian player on the pitch that night. But it was Joe Cole we were all focusing on, yeah. on to see. Yeah, we, we were told initially about this is, a, this is the next superstar, guys. Need to come and watch him, and we also we're going to support our our youth team as well. Yeah, and and Rodin has obviously gone and done well himself as well. Yeah, I know he's doing fantastically well. Um, okay, so I think one of the things that's quite interesting is I know you've been involved in in you were involved with the Indian national football team coming over to England. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so I got myself involved in the year 2000 with an Asian gentleman who had this vision of bringing the Indian team over here. Uh, And he obviously knew I was a football coach and he said, can you come on board and we want to do this event. Um, So it was really interesting. I was more purely the technical side, supporting the technical side. Um, So... I was involved with the Indian team coming over and we played uh, West Brom uh, with 18,000 people there. And it was really interesting that watching the Indian coach, coach's team, um, we know they're, they're not there. We know they weren't there then. Uh, but to, to be given a role as the Indian coach and I would put him at quite a low level. It just goes to show where they were and how they were doing their selection process. 
And so on many occasions, I, I coached the team at the training base, um, which was nice. We, they had some very, very good players. Obviously, they had Bajin Budia, the England's superstar. Uh, they had I.M. Vijayan, who I would say was better than Baichung Bhutia from Karela near Goa, um, who was an, an amazing striker, uh, some natural, natural goal-scoring instincts. Uh, so we, we played them, in, uh, we played a few matches in 2000. We called them again over the next, I think it was two years, I brought them in. Then we brought Baichung Bhutia here. Uh, we got him a contract to sign for Berry Football Club. And he spent three years there on a three-year contract. Um, initially, actually, uh, he struggled with his fitness level. So we would take him through. Uh, I think Terry, Terry got involved a little bit with that as well. Um, got, uh, we got him fit to a certain standard. His strength and conditioning was low. But he survived three years, but then after that, he got no, no other contract. Um, we were, I was also involved with the same setup to bring the Pakistan team here and also the reggae boys from Jamaica. Uh, so we brought the reggae boys and the, the, the Pakistan football team uh, and the Bangladesh football team. So you can see from the, from the South Asian content, we brought, try, to, try to do something here. But uh, it was difficult to get the local community to buy in you know, they thinking Pakistan football team. No, we just play cricket. So there was a lot of marketing to be done in that area. But uh, it was great, but it, it didn't last, and I don't think they've come back since. Okay, so I mean, on that, it's. I think it's one of those things. My general feeling is that with Asians in this country, if you talk about cricket, they'll the normal Tebbit test. They'll tend to support their country of ethnic origin, et cetera, be India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, et cetera. Um, but when it comes to football, they're very, they very much have an English football team. Um, how much, actually, I don't really know where, what kind of question to ask, but I guess it's going to be, what, what do you think has prevented Asians sort of being more involved in football from your perspective, well, just generally, yeah. all for all throughout, from everything, from coaching through to playing, obviously at the highest level, and even grassroots participation. There's lots of teams, um, but we know from speaking to people like Imral Ghazi, etc. There's not a lot of fans outside of the top clubs. Well, that's quite a, a general, a big question, but. Um, why are there a lack of Asians involved in football at whatever capacity? Um, I think from my perspective is it was initially parental. Um, parents had other jobs to do. They came from a third world country. They had a lot of other thoughts in their head. Um, they came from poverty. They didn't want to see their children in poverty. So what is the best for their children? Education, education, as we know. That was that was in my days. Um, then came the reluctance of Asian people to go out of the comfort zone. Like I said, 500 English 
coaches in a seminar and me walking along to go out of their comfort zone and to go into a more challenging environment, okay? Whether that's going to play away from your Asian football team where you're very comfortable on a Saturday and a Sunday to play with your friends, with your same coloured people, to go go out and push yourself and challenge yourself and to play at a much more higher level. Um, I thought there was a reluctance of that in those days. Uh, Obviously, having a lack of role models didn't help. Um, But then came the, the, the time whereby people started to say, why is there no Asians in football? What is the issue? We started to see a lot more Asians breaking through into academy football. So at Coventry City, we would see Asian children coming in. Some might last a year, some might last two years. Um, what was the lad's name? Um, Indipal Sidhu. Um, Sidhu. There's a lad called Baines and a lad called Sidhu at Coventry City. They, they got into the reserve team. Uh, and I forgot their names, uh, Baines and, and Sidhu. They got into the reserve team, played a couple of games, I think a few minutes for the first team, and that's it. They're out of the system. Uh, it's it's very, very hard. That's the first thing, whether you're black, white, Asian, black, it doesn't matter. It's a very, very hard thing to achieve professional status. Okay, And um, being a minority, you are a lack of. So there isn't many of you. So the one or two who are going to make it going to have to be extremely good. Um, so there was the reluctance of the uh, parents. There was Asian children coming in to the academy system and then not achieving professional status. Now, for what reason? It might be for one child, it might be that technically he was not good enough no more. Okay. For another child, it might be psychologically he started to make the wrong decision at the wrong time. Uh, we know we've talked about physicality before. For somebody, it might have been the physicality side. Because in those days, whether you're white or Asian, they were looking at phys- physical side, looking at players. But you know, we know that that doesn't count for anything no more because you've got Maradona and uh, uh, people like Messi showing the skills uh, at much younger heights, smaller heights. Um, so we had people coming in and out of the academy. But we still didn't have enough coaches. So at grassroots level, talk about my club, Council Football Club in Leamington Spa, we still didn't have, apart from Chaz, and we had another lad called Babs Condola, who, who went on to do his B licence. But for, apart from that, years passed and people didn't want to jump on the bandwagon of coaching. Well, no, not, not coaching, sorry, achieving their badges their qualifications. We had a a pathway and a uh, conveyor belt of coaches coming in and giving their valuable free time up, but investing in their time and going to do their qualifications. No, was the answer. So that we can't blame the system for that. We can only blame yourselves for, for not wanting to go and do it. So a lack of coaches coming in, doing their badges. And even now, if we look at the figures, We've started to see in the year 2021, we've started to see at the FA a lot more um, coaches coming through and doing their level ones, level twos, 
and a few going on to do their B and A licenses. But the but we're still not seeing the numbers that we'd like to see. So when we jump on the bandwagon, why are there not enough Asian coaches? Well, if you said to me, Chaz, I've got 100 Asian coaches here, A licensed coaches, why are they not getting the jobs? Then there might be a fair, fair um, uh, talking point. But when there's only a minority of coaches who are A licensed coaches from the Asian, South Asian background, then, you know, I, I wonder whether we need to look at ourselves a little bit more too. Okay. Now, just on the point, the FA are currently and have been for the last few years doing a lot of good work in trying to uh, get the minority Asian ethnics and blacks to support them in getting on the path of coach education. So, for example, like I've mentioned to you that I've done, I've been mentoring UA for B BAME coaches who want to become A licensed coaches. We've had a mentoring program across the grassroots pathway to support coaches who, for example, uh, in the past, whether you were a white coach or an Asian coach or a black coach, doesn't matter, you went on an FA coach education course, you've done your four or five days or two weeks days, days there, and thank you very much, that was it. The FA never saw you again until you came on the next course. But what the FA have been doing for the last few years, if you finish your FA level one, we will support you in your environment, in your capacity, in your kids, to make sure that you are still applying some of the new tools and techniques that you've learned on the course. Uh, And then support you to try to become a coach on the next course. Um, so there's been a lot of support at grassroots for not just Bain coaches, but for general coaches too. But more recently, as of now, November 2020, and we're just piloting it at the moment, we've got now diversity and inclusion officers within the FA whose primary role is to go out there into the Asian and black communities to see how we can support them even further to make sure we are getting the black and Asian people into professional roles, okay? Um, As you can appreciate, with the amount of black football players that we have playing in the premiership, it doesn't reflect on the amount of black coaches or managers we have. So to try to plug that gap, the FA are now putting this diversity inclusion initiative in, um, headed by Butch Fazal, um, who's an Asian lad um, working within the FA and doing a fantastic job. Yep, we've interviewed Butch before. Um, episode 20, I think. Can't remember. For our listeners, look okay. it up. It's a good one. Listen, I, I wanted to pick up on something, actually. Um, number one, do you? Th- I remember speaking with you years ago. Um, I could, I'd probably say more than 10, 11 years ago. Um, and at that point, I was working at Eastern Eye and we we're trying to push coaching as a pathway. But I don't think our community is fully aware of what coaching means. Like most of us think, go to the park, kick, put some cones out and kick the ball around. But coaching as a, as a profession, as a vocation is so much more than that, isn't it? 
And I don't think there's been enough information out there. But thanks to the advent of socials, we're seeing more coaches putting their kind of um, the stuff out there. So you're seeing more one-to-one skill coaches. You're seeing the the youth coach. You're seeing uh, you're seeing uh, coaches who are working in the adults environment. We're seeing more of it because there's more visibility of what coaching involves. Um, has that helped in any way? That now, because as a coach, you're more you're, if someone asks you what is a coach, what do you do? You've got exa- or visible examples where you can say you can do ball mastery, you can do uh, kids coaching, youth coaching, etc. And then here's a pathway to get on as well. Because ultimately, when someone wants to jump onto a profession, they want to know, can I get a job out of it? And that's the only reason they'd want to jump on a level one, level two, and then understand what kind of jobs are available. Because they're thinking, if I'm going to put the time investment into coaching uh, or getting my qualifications, am I going to get paid? Um, do you think that mindset has changed or do you even think what I've just said is a fair kind of assumption? Um, well, okay. There lies the issue, I think. People are looking for the end result when they're starting on the, uh, on the pathway at level one. You've got to – there are no shortcuts to success, right? You, there's a little bit of luck on the way. You have to have ability and you have to have experience. But for, for, for people to say, I'm, I'm, I want to go on my level one to aspire to becoming a professional coach, that's fine. You can aspire. But to, to be guaranteed that job, there is no guarantee. Okay? You have to invest your time and effort at volunteering. Okay? That's where the trade is learned, on the grass. You'll learn a little bit on your courses, but the majority is on the grass. And um, listen, I don't think nobody is spoon-fed in life. You know, if everybody had all of the answers to all of their questions on day one, and um, I think that's that's difficult. Um, I always remember when Council Football Club asked me to coach. Okay. And I went down to see the coaching session. And I have to, I say this story every time I deliver my coach education. So they asked me to come down and have a look. And I went down and had a look. And this is the honest truth that our council kids are training to attack from a corner under nines. They're attacking from a corner. And the cross comes in and the attacker misses the header. And the coach grabs hold of his ear and says, head that flipping ball, will you? And I'm standing at the sideline and he says, Chaz, you want to coach? I says, no, I don't want to coach. So what did I do? Why didn't I want to coach? Because I wanted to go on the level one course and understand what is the right way of coaching. I went on the level one, come back and applied those tools and techniques to those under nines. Went on my level two. Now they're a bit older. UA for B, they're a bit older now. And my UA for A, they were my guinea pigs for my A license. But that's where you've got to apply all of your mistakes and all your learning down the bottom end. Okay. Um, so, yes, it's great to have a pathway. It's great. And the FA are giving more and more pathways out there. There's a lot more transparency. There's a lot more um, information available. Okay. 
Uh, but it still doesn't stop you that the hard workers have got to be put on the grass and you're only going to get further up the chain through ability. Question that I've asked previously of other coaches or people involved in coaching, and it kind of follows on from what Z was saying. Do you think coaching ability is is do you think the importance of it is recognized generally? I mean, we know at the top level people talk about the best managers and the best coaches, but even at the top level, quite often it seems personalities are appointed to either manage or coach as opposed to coach in the first place. And and that further down the chain as you go into semi-pro and grassroots level, etc., um, you can imagine there's going to be a lot of nepotism will go on. People know people and they'll give them opportunities. And we've heard anecdotally, sometimes that happens over those who might be more qualified so I don't know if that's just the nepotism side or it's people not appreciating and valuing coaching. Looking at whether people get jobs because they know people, well, that's that's the way of life. <laughs> I think that's in general, I think, across board. Um, is coaching recognised down at grassroots level? If you want to learn how to play the violin, you can, look, you can make many mistakes by practising on your own. Right, but when you go to a teacher who will teach you, okay, you will learn better and much quicker, hopefully. But it depends on the teacher. It depends on the qualities of the teacher, on what they say, how they say it, when they say it. So, for example, Shay Adams, who's now who is now playing at Southampton. Shay Adams would never want to be coached. He did not like being coached. Okay. Uh, he would just say, let, me, let the game be the teacher. Just let me play football. Stop. Because coaches can overcoach. I'm the coach. Listen to me. I'm the big wing. I know what to do and I know what to say. How old well, was Shay when he was with you? Shay was, I would say, 11. He did not want to be coached. He wanted to play. And, and there lies the problem. We overcoach sometimes just because we have the FA badge. Okay, um, and a good coaches uh, know what to do, when to do it, what to do with what coach, uh, what player, and what to do with what player. Some players might need a, a hand around their shoulders. Some players might need a little bit more stringent command style of coaching. Some players might need a little bit of guided discovery. Well, what do you think about this, uh, Do you think we could do this differently? Um Z might need it in a Q&A. Z, did you just see what happened over there? Oh, yeah. What did you see? So there's many ways of coaching. And the ability of a good coach is to adapt their coaching style for the player that are in front of them. Because I think, I'm, look, the one difference between the violin and football is everyone's got an opinion on football. Everyone's got an opinion. And I see it with my boys' Sunday team when they're playing, not so much on his team, but all the opposition parents are always shouting, do this, do that. because And they're not letting the, the manager, the coach, get on with it. So that's the thing. Everyone's got an opinion. Everyone thinks they know what they're talking about. And I think, I mean, my, listen, so my personal opinion is I think coaching is a little bit undervalued um, 
ask those volunteering coaches who put the, the day in. So for your child, do you think his coach only invests, invests the one or two hours on a Wednesday evening and one or two hours on a Sunday when he plays? Or is it thinking on a Monday, thinking on a Tuesday, thinking on a Wednesday, thinking about a match on Thursday, thinking about... It's a seven-day job for these volunteer coaches, and they need to be respected a little bit more than they are. So I do agree with what you're saying. Some of these parents um, need to understand and value the effort that these coaches are doing. And just on the point of parents, we actually played, and we just wanted to make parents aware of the level of noise and the the distraction that it causes to a child's development when they're trying to play against an opposition and it's a competition, they want to win and there's pressure from the opposition and from the coach and from this additional pressure of parents. We wanted to make parents aware of how hard it is. Okay, So what we've done one day is when we've got all the players to stand on the sideline and we've got the parents to play a match and we've got the children shouting at the parents. <laughs> and it was a really interesting exercise to just make the parents aware that, you know, just come and enjoy and support the team rather than trying to coach the team while they're trying to get through it. Very interesting exercise. Was, was this at Coventry? Yes, it was, actually. It was. It was at Coventry. I guess um, I'd say is how would you deal with the egos that sit in the football federations? Because again, just there's always like if, if you look at the situation in Pakistan right now, at the time we're recording this, so much upheaval going on backstage in in, in the upper echelons of the football federation that the players on the ground are suffering. Like there's no domestic football going on right now. FIFA have suspended them as well. So there's always going to be, and that that's an extreme example right now. And hopefully things get better, but there's always going to be something because there's been no attempts to bring over the Pakistan and India team uh, before in the last 10, 15 years and it hasn't come to fruition for one reason or another. So how how would you deal with the egos that exist there? Is it egos or is it, is it we're dealing with corruption? And, I, and, I, and I'll tell you why I'm saying the word corruption. I ended up at the All India Football Federation headquarters in Delhi. Uh, I had a meeting with the secretary there. And what is the All Indian Football Federation headquarters? It's just a administration building. There are no football pitches. There's nothing there. And on that, I tried to do something in India at state level and, and, and national level. Uh, coach education work and working with their youth teams. Um, but talk is very, very good there. We talk a great game. Okay, but to bring it to fruition, it is a different game. Um, and I will bring that down to corruption. I'm sorry if that's a big word. Uh, because I started, I tried to do something at village level. Uh, just not, re- not recently. My mum died three years ago of cancer. And in her memory, I wanted to open an academy in India. And there was the all singing, all dancing, 3G football pitch with its green fencing, just like here in the UK. It was standing on the side of a main road. And I looked and thought, wow, what's this doing here? And I investigated into it. 
And it was just an MLA, a regional person who's come and pl- sit there for his elections, right? and planted in there, and nothing's happening there. And, and we're, we're fighting a big, big uh, um, sort of um, don't want to know football in that country, even at grassroots level. And who's being affected is the players. Okay, there are people trying to do things at different levels, but unfortunately, it's not filtering down into into grassroots there. And so, you know, um, the answer is unfortunately, until you get rid of corruption over there, nothing's going to happen. I mean, yeah, it would be a great notion if you could bring the teams over. It happened was in the early part of the century, didn't it? When you had the India team come over and the Bangladesh national team came over as well. So there, it's possible to do. It just depends, I guess, who you're dealing with. And, and I, I use the word ego because the ego trumps anything else, really. I mean, corruption exists. Let's, let's not beat around the bush. But it's the ego of, if you're coming to me, that I'm the one in power and it has to be my suggestion or it has to be some minister or some powerful person say, it was my idea to do this. I should get the glory. It's usually what you see at election time. Everyone wants to have that credit point of view. Um, me personally, I'd love to see a, a game between, you know, the, the whole call the home nations in in England or take them out to you to USA or wherever the diaspora is because it's as uh, much as we've all dispersed around the world we're still very feel connected to our parents and our grandparents countries right and football is a global game so what better than to see that happen you know to give something back that end as well so from a purely football perspective it'd be beautiful to happen um but I guess that's where it's going to need all your mental strength to deal with <laughs> to make it possible. See, I, I would ask the question, do you think nobody has tried to bring the Indian, Pakistan, Bangladesh team over since 2000? I would say they have. There's been plenty of attempts. Yeah, there have been. There was supposed to be a game in 2011. Um, but then, do you remember when the summer riots happened in, in London and other parts of the city? There was supposed to be a game in that in that period to take place and a couple of other attempts as well. So there have definitely been attempts. It just didn't happen for one reason or another. Um, I guess in that, if you look at the current day, say in 2021, we on the surface thing in India, football seems to be in a better place. I'm, I'm saying seems to be because you've got the Indian League. Super League. Um, that's basically taking all the kind of headlines. But then you've got the I-League, which has been a league this, that's been there for absolute years. It's had lack of investment. It's had lack of interest in it from the echelons. Mm. And then a brand spanking new league has come in. And that's, I think we're kind of going quite deep into the topic. But if you see the politics that have happened in, in football in a domestic level in India, you see there's been good things that happen on the surface, but you don't know so much what's happening in background. And then also in Pakistan as well. Um, so attempts have always been made. It's just how... How much first from from a single perspective, how much kind of grit and determination you've got to make it happen, and then secondly, what connections you have to actually get the green light and get the the the, the contract signed. And there lies the issue. It's not this end; it's that end. Is the issue? Uh, like you said right at the start, we all have an allegiance to our homeland. All right. Uh, at this current moment, you you know what's happening with the farmers' protest in India. We all have an allegiance to that. But there comes a time where, you know what, you put your hand up and you say, you know what, I've had enough. I've had enough. I'm going to die in the UK. I'll tell you, I might as well invest a little bit more in the UK now. Because you have enough, you know, it's just it, it's just too much over there. 
for us. We can't cope with <laughs> they work. I don't know what the answer is. It's up to them. They want it. We, we'll, we'll make it happen this end. It's entirely up to them. But I think we should focus more on the, on the home growth we've got in this country and how we nurture them for the future. Just before we move on to that, a question for both of you, really. We've, we're, when we talk about bringing those nations over here to play a couple more friendlies and stuff like that, what would the advantages be for, firstly, the Asians in this country, the footballing Asians in this country, and what would the advantage be for for football back there? Hmm. Chad, uh, you want to go first? No, 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 that, that, that's fine. Um, yeah. to, again, like Z said, we have an allegiance to, to, to the homeland and to see homegrown players coming over here from India and playing in, in our environment it just makes us feel more proud uh, that things are happening over there. Um, for India, it will be getting some of their superstars, you know, hopefully out into the into other countries and into their national leagues. Um, hopefully there's a, one or two stone floating around. I think one, there's one in Germany, one young lad uh, here in Germany. Um, there's a lad who's in, in Germany for the Indian uh, Arunava Chowdhury. That's what his name is. He's a journalist from Germany. Arunava Chowdhury, he was involved a lot with the Indian football when they came over here. Very, very dedicated to Indian football. Um, so I, it will bring their profile up. Of course it will. Um, and it will just just sort of make the link a little bit more firmer for second-generation children in this country with some of their players from India or from their from other countries from the South Asian continent. Oh, yeah. Um, I think the biggest advantage on the back of what um, of Chad is saying is getting the players over here. We've had, um, obviously, when India team first came over, well, I think they first came, when they came in the 2000s, you had Bai Chang Bhutia who played for, for Berry at the time. So there was that kind of, he was the big superstar at the time. He came with the national team and then he was playing domestically in, in the English leagues as well. So there was that kind of follow-on to that. And there's been other players like um, Sunil Chetri and Gurpreet Sandhu played in leagues in Europe. And also, I think Sunil went to play with Kansas City as well in America. So there's been those small attempts. From one perspective, from India point of view, right now, they don't allow dual nationality or, or dual heritage players to play for the national team, right? And if you look at the talent pool that exists in the diaspora, yeah, you're mentioning um, the player from Germany, uh, Sarpreet Singh. Now, he represents New Zealand, but you've got this diaspora around the world. If you could bring the team over, that conversation might work better to show you might bring the diaspora players together who are playing in England and other parts of Europe to this game where India are playing, we've got the officials as well, maybe some ministers, and make a, a move happen. Because Maybe like Jamaica has, team has Ireland has done. Yeah, yeah. It, exactly. exactly. You've seen the, the efforts Jamaica have done recently. And they've, they've, they've taken an active step of not, are you interested in representing countries? Like, we want you. We're going to do everything possible to get you. We'll even get your passports made for you. And that's that kind of active step and love for the players. Um, the Pakistan national team allows two national players and a lot of players from Europe and the UK have represented the team out there as well. So that for a player who is of Pakistani origin playing in Europe and UK, that might be a pathway to international football. And if you bring the team over, they might see, OK, 
that's current standard right now. Um, what do I have to do to get that point and make myself available when I have an international career? And I think you're looking at those opportunities, what we can give back and what the exchange would be. From an India perspective, I'd want that conversation to happen where diaspora players can play for the national team. Just to fast track it even further in terms of how their rankings are currently in Asia. Because there's plenty of talent and you want to give them the best. And if you can get the likes of, say, your Yandanda or Danny Bartle or all these players, play for the Indian national team. Massive, it's going to have a massive um, kind of response and interest in, in the UK and Europe. For those to to see to the, to watch the Indian national team, you see what happens when the Indian national team cricket play here in England is absolute madness, right? It's a mazza. So you can imagine, could you imagine that happening in 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 England as well with the homegrown players playing for the national team? You get that massive interest, and then it will help the rankings as well. And you know, one step closer to achieving the World Cup dream because that's that's always a uh, an interest as well. So I, I I see it purely from a pure football perspective. It could help players, you know, aim for an international career and secondly, help with rankings as well. And I think those two are kind of important factors. We're just looking purely from a football perspective. Fantastic. OK, moving on a little bit. So, Chaz, you're a coach. So you're employed by the FA as a coach at St. George's Park, which is the home of England English football, right? So can you tell us about... Under non-COVID times, what would a typical sort of week look like for you there? Yeah, so the, the, the coaching role at the FA is not full-time because you can't coach full-time. Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's a two or three-hour day role, but it can, it, it can vary up to six, seven hours. For example, um, we could have a team come in the morning and... And let's say they come in on Monday morning and they do some strength and conditioning work in the gym. So we'll do spend a day um, doing some strength and conditioning. Um, there might be a day whereby we want to we want to train them in the morning on their speed and agility and quickness drills. Um, we'll do about an hour and a half of coaching in the morning. Have a look, have some lunch. Uh, no, sorry, before the lunch, then we'll take them into the hydrotherapy. So the hydrotherapy is the hot and cold baths we have there to, to aid their recovery uh, from their, their session. We'll take them in the afternoon to do some theory around some tactics uh, and what we were working on. Um, and then we would have, our coaches would have a meeting around um, what are we going to do next session? in the evening uh, the next session doesn't have to be next day because um, some teams the, the department I work in uh, within the FA is not actually coaching the youth teams from the FA it's coaching teams who come in to the complex and stay at the complex whether it's for two days four days or six days on a camp uh, and whatever their needs are we cater for them um, so then we plan for the, for the day after um, but uh, the, the key thing is working on whatever schedule, a different schedule, depending on what client you've got in front of you is the key. So if you've got an underage school team coming just for the two-hour session, you plan a session just for two hours 
and then put it in the hydrotherapy. But if you've got a team coming from, like, for instance, America, we get teams coming from America and Australia a lot, um, and then they're here for a week, um, then we would plan that. I, I actually had the South Korean um, Football Federation bring their team over, and they were here specifically for a two-week camp. Um, so we have to plan a whole session for the whole two weeks. And that actually took me back out to South Korea to, to Seoul to do some coach uh, education work out there. Um, we had an English schools team. This was really interesting, actually. We had an English schools team who was going to play in the cup final. And this is so interesting, this was. And I had no idea what was happening next. So this, in, this team was going to play in the English schools. I think it was the under-18 um, cup at the national final. And they wanted to come to St. George's Park and work on some defensive tactics. Okay, So I worked on specifically their request on the indoor 3G pitch, on the full England pitch, uh, on their defensive tactics. Uh, they went away. And next day, and I did not know this, was their opponent's in the final <laughs> so I coached them and, and it was so funny and, uh, and I said I just coach your uh, opponents who are playing in your final <laughs> they said oh what were you working on I said oh, I'm not going to tell you <laughs> so yeah so it's a variety of days uh, not always full time um, when I'm not doing work there then I go away and do my coach education or my mentoring work for the FA um, and do my other bits, uh, bits and pieces what you, what you need to do. Fair enough. And how, so, I mean, you've, I guess some of the teams from abroad, they're obviously paying the FA to, to come and experience the, the coaching, etc. You mentioned the school teams, etc. Is it same for them? How, how do teams end up at St. George's Park? Um, whether you're a grassroots football team, whether you're a college, whether you're an international um team coming from uh, from another country, whether you're an international federation, you pay. It's it's a business. Mm. It's a model that the FA used to, 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 to come in and use their facilities and use their expert coaches. Um, and we obviously work for the FA and we get paid ourselves. But um, there's, a, there's a website, St. George's Park website. There's experiences on there. You can tailor-make your experience to whatever your needs are. Uh, but it's all on the website. All right, fantastic. Okay, cool. So in terms of you and your coaching career, do you have any plans moving forward? Do you want to get back into a team or perhaps take on a team part-time? Um, I think the way I look at it now and where I am in my age now, um, it would be good to become a UA for a licensed tutor. I think that would be nice to aspire to. Um, with the FA coach education all changing this year, um, that might be a little bit more. That's what I'd aspire to. But as far as coaching within a semi-professional team, I think rather not. I'll most probably go more down mentoring, mentoring upcoming coaches. I think that's where I would see my expertise over the next few years. Because as you can appreciate, you, you go through certain stages in your life and you, you want to pick and choose what is right for you at the right time. Fair enough. And in terms of the mentoring, you said you're mentoring some of the 
the BAME coaches, etc. Um, what's the take up and the feedback been like on on that with that program? I think from last year's cohort, um, and Butch Fazal would have the correct figures. Out of the the three BAME coaches I had to coach, two got through and into becoming a license on, onto the A license. Um, again, the feedback you give to those coaches after you've seen them, right, who are already UEFA B qualified, who know the game a little bit more than a level one coach does, has got to be beneficial to them, has got to be accurate, has got to provide information that is realistic, relevant, and they agree to it, okay, uh, and which will help them and support them to getting on to that A licence. So going back to what you're saying, has it been beneficial? Has it been well received? Very, very well received. Very well received from those people who even didn't get on it, onto the, onto the AA level. Um, and I think we're doing some more work this year with Butch Fazell for the next year's cohort. Okay. And just as lastly from me, really, in terms of trying to encourage more Asians in into football and moving up as such, what else, is there anything else, any other schemes or programmes that you'd like to see that you think might might be beneficial? You could, Yeah, I, I'd like to, the FAR supporting the women's and girls side a lot more now as well over the last few years. Uh, there is an initiative from the FA to support BAME girls and women's coaches too. Um, but I sometimes, I find it, I know we have to, um, we have to target our support where it's required sometimes, but I sometimes find that a little bit hard too. So, for example, if I can give you my example, last year I was coaching, um, sorry, mentoring a BAME UEFA B coach on pitch A, let's just say. On pitch B was a white coach who was going for his A license too, but I could not go and support him because my focus was the BAME coach. And sometimes you think, well, you're just a, you're a mentor. You, you need to be supporting both. Uh, but no, I, we have to target the, the BAME coach. Um, that's where it sometimes becomes a little bit, I don't know what the word I want to use here. Is it is it you're supporting the BAME coach because you have to support it because they're underrepresented and it's a bit of targeted work? Uh, why shouldn't you be supporting the white coach too? If you if you are a mentor for BAME uh, for for UEFA B coaches, I don't know what I was trying to say there, but sometimes the the job just becomes a little bit difficult where where you see another coach on another pitch that you should be supporting. Who's who's trying to get on the A license just like the BAME coach? Is is that a limitation that's been instilled in the role, or is that just the perception that you can't do that? What 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 is it for you? It's the limitation in the in the job role. Hmm. It's, it's targeted, and, and and sometimes we do have to do targeted programs. 
it's okay, you know. But sometimes I, I found it quite difficult that day. I really did, and 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 I'm being honest there. Now just on that point, I think it's um, it's quite big to mention that because even if you are from a South Asian background yourself, ultimately in that in, in that professional environment, it's not about. I guess you want to be colorblind to the facts, regardless of the coach is. If he's got that qualification, he or she has that qualification and you want to basically help them, you should have that. You should be able to. I know. Mm-hmm. I think certain times you have to meet your, where was written in your job description, but just, just listening to that, this, this desire within you would say, I'll help. I'll yeah. Forget who it is, just, I'll help. You know what I mean? And sometimes I think, I always think that there's always scope to do that. And maybe sometimes you might have to do that in your own time because that might, you might have your day packed or whatever. But sometimes when you see an opportunity like that, you don't want to miss out because that one piece of advice or one kind of contact with that individual could be the difference in a massively positive way because you're going to think that person's going to go back into the environment and then going to influence X number more people through the the coaching principles that they're applying, right? So it's, it, it, yeah, I, I like that, what you just said there. And I think that's when you know the role means more to you than just what's written on, on the job title. Yeah, absolutely. And it challenges your morals and principles too. You know, it really does. And just on that, for example, within the FA now, we have some diversity and inclusion officers, I think eight across the country. Now, the word diversity and inclusion. Okay. So when it comes to diversity and inclusion, you would think uh, you would have more black and Asian diversity officers. But, but, uh, but there are some white diversity and, and inclusion officers out there. Now, I wonder how they must be feeling that they are now diversity and inclusion officers only totally focusing on BAME, B-A-M-E, uh, where they are from a past just county coach developers, they are coach educators, they are coaches who are in that mold, they want to help everybody. But unfortunately, their now work is uh, just on vain. I wonder, really deep down, I wonder how they're feeling. Do you get the opportunity to talk to them about that? I mean, I don't know how often it comes up. And when you do get together, do you just talk about football or...? No. Do you share those concerns? Yes, we talk about them. And we have talked about that talked about them and I don't think it's um, something it would be unfair for me to give their perspective of what they think um, um, rather than them saying it themselves I think that would be unfair but it is challenging because they are just the big thing you mentioned is that challenge because it's a fairly it's been called for for a long time, but this it's an ever-evolving situation when it comes to EDI, right? Um, diversity can mean anything. It could be diversity of thought. It could mean uh, social status. It could mean gender. It could mean so much. And I think when, as an individual, you almost have to, you have to work within the guidelines because if you think it's open to interpretation, then if one's doing something and the other's not, then there's a disparity. But if you're all following the same kind of uh, 
the, J, the JD or the bullet points in JD, you think there's limitations. And I think there has to be always a scope, like saying you're talking, but then whoever's going to make the decision higher up to make changes has to be listening as well. And that, that should be an open kind of dialogue between just like yourself or so anyone else working in a DNI role and the ones who are going to be able to make and facilitate changes because it's, it's, an ev- it's an evolution. It's never going to remain the same any single time. And there should be quicker changes happening on that front. So you feel like whatever I think is happening, this limitation should be taken on board. And if it's feasible, we can make that change. I, I, think, I think what you're saying is, is very valid. It's not in black and white, as they would say. Let's, this div- diversion inclusion officer roles Perhaps they're not in black and white and they don't need, and they need to be evolving, like you said. So if there is there is something that they find in six months because they're new roles, they say it's not quite working well, let's change it. Let's change it. And, and absolutely, and not have it as a blueprint, as a black print, black and white, this is it, this is the role. And let's evolve. Um, and, and I hope they will. It's a new, it's a new role within the FA. They they're trying new things, and we have to um, we have to grab this opportunity as BAME, part of the BAME community. The FA are doing a lot of work to support the BAME community. We need to grab it now. Over the next four years, we need to showcase to the FA that there is, an, there is an, uh, a conveyor belt of Asian coaches coming through, right? Of, of black coaches coming through, right? At a good level. At UEFA A license, a UEFA Pro license level. Now, then, if the jobs are not coming, then we've got another a route to go on. But there is no excuse within within the Asian community now of not wanting or not getting the support to get on uh, on the coach education on the coach qualification bandwagon and to get themselves into 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 academies, into professional clubs. And to be honest, why not into the semi-pro clubs as well? Why are we overlooking the semi-pro clubs? There are jobs there. You know, mm. is it, does it have to be I, I want to work within a professional academy or can it be I want to work within a, a, a level four academy, you know, or a part-time academy? So sometimes we aspire, which is great, but the reality is that we're not all going to get the, the, the top jobs, right? Um, we have to keep going. But let's not blame the FA no more. There are there are plenty of good initiatives I, being given. I think I think uh, I'll, I'll say this openly: the FA will always get damned because that's just the nature of people. They're gonna find a scapegoat. You're seeing what's happening with VAR at the moment. VAR's getting absolutely hammered. Is it the system? Is it the principle with the people behind it? You just have to have a scapegoat, and I don't think it's ever gonna come a time when the FA is not going to get blamed for one thing or another. And that's just an open kind of uh, perspective I have. And that's the people I speak to as well. But more importantly than that, I always look at the kind of solutions side of things as well. If you've got aspiring coaches and they got their, they're on their qualification, they got the qualification, just say you're level ones, you're level twos, and they're working in the system uh, in, in, as you mentioned, semi-pro football, or grassroots. How do they get in touch with the FA? Does the FA have uh, a list of talent pool or, 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 or does it have the names and, and the individuals where they're based who've got the level ones, level twos, and how they can move them up to that next standard? Uh, well, within, within the counties, you've got county FAs. And they have uh, inclusion officers. 
they they have uh, people who are whose job roles is to support grassroots football within their county. So that would be your first port of call is to contact your county. Um, and sometimes we jump that we, it's the FA. It's not the FA. It's underneath the FA. It's the local county FAs that we need to contact. So does the okay just on that level, and obviously this is uh, education as well. So does the county FA go and reach out, and do they have a list of all coaches who've got their level level two, or is it the onus on the coaches to get in touch with the county FAs? Which way does it work? Absolutely. So in order to in in the past, in order to go get onto your level one you would have to approach your FA county, your local county that I wanted to live, I want to go on to my level one. And then you are, then you are on the system. You will get a, a fan number from the FA. You are on their system now. Uh, and, and then you're on the pathway. But it's up to you to get yourself onto the next one. It's up to you to get yourself on the next one. In between, there is mentoring schemes out there now to support you. So uh, not just for Bain, for everybody. There is mentors, but there are only so many mentors. That mm. mentor, uh, I've been a mentor for the last sort of four or five years within the FA, whenever it started, the pilot schemes. Uh, great benefit, great value to the coaches. You are adding so much value to those coaches that is, it really does support them. But there are only so many. I think the FA are about to employ 150 in June. Uh, new mentors. Okay, uh, there's never enough. So you have to leave a legacy within that club to promote somebody from that club to become the head coach who can go and support other coaches within that club. Cool. Okay. Just to finish off, I'm I'm quite curious. You've worked, especially at Coventry Academy, with some that people have become some quite big players, Daniel Sturridge, James Madison, Shay Adams, which, what, have any of those overachieved? Are you surprised with any of them in terms of what you saw and how much they've developed since then? Like I said earlier on, at the ages I coached them, um, I couldn't, nobody could say that at the age of 12, uh, they were going to make become professional footballers. But if you look at the characteristic of Daniel Sturridge, he stood out more than anybody in the psychology side. He had an aura about him. He had some self-belief. He had some confidence that it was a bit like, you know what, um, you can see in his swagger when he was at Liverpool when he did the swagger. And it nearly bordered arrogance, um, but it was confidence channeled in the right direction because every time he made a mistake, it didn't bother him. He sort of kicked the mistake into the bin and said, okay, another one mistake, another learning opportunity. And that, that for me, was sort of thinking, mm, yeah, I like his way of thinking. Uh, technically, he was very good. Very fast, great left foot, right? Used to take me on. I used to take him on as well, actually. <laughs> um, but psychologically, uh, he was there. James Madison was mellow. Nice and calm, very sort of 
Glenn Hoddle, nice and relaxed. But his vision was very good. His awareness is extremely good. Uh, but no, at those ages, I would like to, I would love to know any scout out there who can say he's going to make it. Because yeah. you don't know what's going to happen once they go through the growth spurt, once they've had their big growth spurt at 14, 15.